0: Hi everyone. everyone. I'm John.
1: And I'm Georgia. And we're here. Inside
0: your ears. To
1: talk about the mac and cheese of movies.
0: This This is is Comfort Comfort Films. Films. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 46 of the Comfort Films podcast. We are continuing with our second episode in the Straight to the Sequel series, and we are going to be talking about 1980s The Empire Strikes Back, an absolute solid gold classic that we have watched a million times and will be happy to watch a million more. As a matter of fact, we actually watched three different versions of the film in preparation for this podcast. This is how dedicated we are to this picture. This movie is landmark it's incredible and i'm even gonna say it i think it's the best one in the original trilogy and you know what the best one in the entire star wars series
1: i think you are in good company there i think a lot of people feel that way and yeah i mean it's funny because as many times as we have both watched this movie we keep learning more and more about it Um we ended up listening to a commentary track this time as well um, that was with George Lucas.
0: Irvin Kirshner, who's the director of the film.
1: Ben Burtt, who's the sound designer.
0: Dennis Murin, the genius at ILM who did visual effects for the film.
1: And Carrie Fisher, who you may know as Princess <laughs> Leia. Um, and I guess like to say our minds were blown over and over is kind of an understatement. Because we've seen this movie like a trillion times and we kept learning more stuff. And we were just like mouth open uh, when we were hearing these people talk about making this movie. So I think one thing we probably want to get out of the way early on here is how uh, we consider this a comfort film when the end of the movie is Luke getting his hand chopped off and the good guys, all our heroes, are kind of not at their top of their game and the bad guys are kind of winning at least a little bit. And then we had to wait for like three years, which at the time this was released was more than my entire lifetime, (laughs) to find out, you know, if everything turned out good. So, somebody comes up to you in a dark alley, pulls out their switchblade and says, why is Empire Strikes Back a comfort film? Questioning the whole premise of your show and your life. What do you say? Yoda. Yoda. I think that's a great answer. Yeah,
0: I mean, Yoda is it. I mean, Yoda for me is the greatest creation that there ever was. When I first saw Yoda, I said, The bunny, look, the bunny. (laughs) And I was so happy. He was this cute little mischievous man who was sweet and smart. He's a Jedi. You know, and for those of you that listened to our episode on A New Hope, that's episode 31, if you want to take a look back, I actually talked about Return of the Jedi. You know, I have a spoiler here for Return of the Jedi. When, you know, Yoda died, I cried. I said, no, not the bunny. I love the bunny.
1: Yeah, Yoda is like the reason, I think, if I had to pick one to defend myself, that I would also choose. When I first saw this, I was two, and this came out in 1980, so I was like two and a half in that summer. And I came out of the theater with my parents And I asked my mom, Mama, was this movie eight hours long? Because I just felt like my entire life had just been watching this movie. And it has gone on to actually influence my philosophy of life even. Like when I watch it now and I actually listen to what Yoda is saying, I realize that a lot of the things that he talks about with, you know, his little Zen master philosophy stuff is embedded in my head as the truth. And, you know, these are the things I think about when I'm getting mad and temperamental. You know, I think about being patient and being calm and calming my mind. And I just think that's really awesome. I mean, I have another Yoda story that I think I also told in the New Hope episode, but it bears repeating, where I went to a Halloween party when I was in kindergarten and I walk in the door and Yoda was there. And I completely flipped out, and I, like, was, like, freaking out. And my mom says, oh, go talk to him, Georgia. And I turned around to her and, like, like did a little grasp of my pearls, you know. I was like, I just can't. And it was hilarious. It got spoiled because some little loser girl was freaked out, and Yoda pulled his head off, and it turned out to be my kindergarten teacher, Mrs. Lamar. But it was, like, a next-level costume, and I thought it was, like, really Yoda. Even though, you know, she's, like, five feet tall, which is way too big to be Yoda. It kind of had snowed me because it was a high-quality Yoda mask. But, you know, Yoda is, like, this little bitty dude, but he's so wise, and he's so funny when we're first introduced to him. And he's just kind of the perfect, like... Person, if we want to call him a person, to introduce this Force philosophy. And one of the insane things that we learned in the commentary track was that Lucas only created Yoda because he had killed off Obi-Wan in A New Hope.
0: Yeah, that that blew my mind wide open. Obi-Wan was going to be the one that gave us all this information. Obi-Wan was going to live through A New Hope. I mean, what? Yeah, You know, Yoda is only here because Lucas was like, you know, it might be cooler if I kill him off because he already did his part.
1: Yeah, he's like, he did all this stuff and he doesn't have much to do yeah. at the end of A New Hope, so I'll just kill him off. Then he gets into this movie, the sequel, and he's like, oh, I need somebody to keep talking about this. I could have, you know, Force, Ghost, Obi-Wan back, but... Let's, you know, figure something else out. So he thought about this kind of myth about, like, an old man or, like, an old master or an insignificant person or creature kind of being the font of wisdom. And because the hero is nice to them, they share that wisdom. Um, Another 80s example that pops to mind of that trope for me is Mr. Miyagi with Daniel and the Karate Kid. And so he decided to go with that. They came up with, you know, this idea, and then they're like, well, how are we going to do it? I mean, this was prior to, like, CGI effects and things like this being, like, super advanced. So they ended up realizing that, like, Jim Henson was across the street from where they were. Just realize that. Like,
0: (laughs) oh, let's get Jim, you know?
1: And they go over and they talk to him about a puppet. And Henson was like, yeah, you could do that. And you could, you should get Frank Oz to do it because he's the best person. So they get Frank Oz, they make this puppet. And we heard so much more stuff on this commentary track about how this worked. And it just really like knocked me out because (laughs) I have to say, it's a little silly, but true. Since I first saw this movie up to like, even now, if I'm not thinking about it actively, I just consider Yoda a person. (laughs) I just feel like he's an actor or a person. I don't think about the fact that that he's just lying, you know, inanimate when Frank Oz is not working him because they did such an amazing job. Frank Oz and I'm sure his team, because there were multiple people, you know, were under the floor, like moving his eyes and his face and all these types of things and it was really just brilliant and so real to me more real than it ends up being in the prequels when we have cgi yoda he just feels like a person from his personality down to the way he moves his face and and everything it's brilliant
0: i think yoda has an imdb and he has like (laughs) a really hot career um i think yoda's a person too and to go back to your point with the party, you know, I always was a believer as a kid. I still am. Like, anybody that was dressed up as Santa Claus, I'm like, oh, it's him! It's him! You know? <laughs> he would show up in a Honda, and I would believe that this was the real Santa. That's you know, good.
1: Well, I'm glad I'm not the only Mark no. when I was a little kid. No. I think that's great that we could, like, believe in magical stuff when we were little, sure. you know? And that's part of this, again, of why this is nostalgic and this is comfort, because this movie has like that fairy tale element. It has that magic to it, and you get swept up in it when you're sure. watching. And even now, I feel the same thing. You know, I'm, I'm 44 now, and I've been watching this for 42 years. And there's never a time when I watch this and I don't feel like that sense of magic.
0: Yeah. I mean, there is a real sense of magic. I mean, the Force is magic. You're able to move things with your mind. Yoda's able to pull an X-Wing out of the swamp. You know, I mean, when Luke is, like, upside down on one hand and he's, like, "God, Yoda and then he's moving the rocks, it's like, man, I mean, I would love that kind of coordination, number one. I would love that kind of mental control, you know? Like, for me to memorize facts, I need, like, complete silence and I need to just reread for, like, a half an hour just to get like one fact you know but i mean this is the kind of thing that that i love i like seeing you know these people coming back i wanted obi-wan to come back because he was a great character yeah i mean it brings me to a point though which is okay so obi-wan dies you know in a new hope and he goes to vader strike me down and i'll be more powerful than ever I don't see it. You know, he comes <laughs> back, and then what happens? You know, he's like, okay, you know, go see Yoda. Okay. Good on you, Ben. Good on you. Luke is actually kind of dying in the snow at that point, but, you know, good on you. Yeah, okay, the
1: timing could have been worked on a little bit, but the message is acceptable. Yeah, I he was... Saying.
0: The heart was in the right place, right? And so it's like, you know, later on, you know, when Luke has to go to Cloud City and help his friends, and I said has to because they're his friends, and this entire movie is about friendship. The director... Kirshner said this movie was going to be deeper about all of the characters he wanted every single person in this every human every robot to have deep emotions and to get us connected I mean we were introduced to everyone in A New Hope you know and that was a great introduction it was very fun but this is when we really get into the meat of these characters and you know you're that close. You know, you couldn't just let your friends die. I mean, Yoda wouldn't do it. Ben sure as hell wouldn't have done it. When we learn about how he just goes rogue all the time with all of his moves. And then when Luke is leaving, you know, to go face Vader, Ben's like, you know, I can't intervene. You face Vader alone what do you do, Ben?
1: <laughs> I know. It's like, what do you do? Like, I like Obi-Wan, but Obi-Wan is sort of ineffectual in a lot of ways. And I do think that, um, from what we were listening to with some of the things Lucas was saying, that he has a, George Lucas has kind of a very black and white view of some of the decisions that are made in this movie. Um, in particular, Luke stopping his training to go save his friends even though, you know, he's told you can't do this, you're not trained yet, it's a trap, blah, 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 he still decides to go. And I feel like George Lucas is very firmly saying he's making a mistake. I have to question that because I see shades of gray here. I think that even if Luke understands that he's going to fail and he knows that he's making a mistake, he still has to make this mistake because... It's who he is. He is an emotional person who is friends with these people. They're his family. You know, he doesn't have any family left. The family he had,
0: questionable at best. Well, Leia is his sister. He doesn't know that. And here's another point on the training. Again, we're skipping ahead to Return of the Jedi. Luke goes back to Dagobah. Go see Yoda. All right, let's finish up the trading. Let's knock it out. Yoda's like, you did it all. You're good to go.
1: <laughs> well, I mean... And it's just like, well, what? It's like, uh, really? Yeah. Like, then why did everybody have such a shit fit in the <laughs> Empire? Was that a test? I mean, if it was a test, that was a bullshit test. <laughs> because I... after Luke even leaves... Yoda is still pissed about it so you know I think we have some narrative issues there I'm just gonna say like and we can hand wave them all day and I don't care and I'm fine with that because it's a great story and there's gonna be some things that don't work or that are inconsistent or something like that you kind of can't get around it but I do think that there's like a lot of contradiction in thus sometimes, and I'm guessing that George Lucas's answer would just be like, life is full of contradictions. <laughs> because that's like a very Zen thing, right? We have to like embrace the contradictions, embrace the opposites, you know. So maybe we just aren't embracing hard enough when we look at those things.
0: Well, it's the, speaking of the Zen philosophy, the biggest one that came out for me is do or do not, there is no try. And in terms of the story, I definitely felt like they were doing it. And I mean, I didn't feel that they were ever taking their foot off the gas. This was a, a rocket ship that was taking off. You know, we had the power of that first film. There was so much momentum. And then when they came into this, they blasted forward. And, you know, Lucas says... In the commentary, he was like, when he killed off Ben Kenobi, he's like, oh, I'll figure it out in the next one. (laughs) So, you know, Lucas is a person that likes to play it fast and loose. He believes in things working out, which I think is very admirable, you know?
1: Yeah, I think that he believes that he can find a way to make it work. Mm -hmm. You know, I think he also kind of trusts his story to have its own kind of, you know, momentum, I think. Um, and he's probably right. I mean, it moves forward. The characters move forward. We all kind of have a sense of who these characters are. And I think we're very fortunate that Kershaw was the director of this film because I feel like he has a deep, deep understanding of who these characters are. Um, even you know sometimes in a way that Lucas didn't in one example that I read about which is uh, the scene right before Han Solo is frozen in carbonite Uh, he and Leia have kind of been building their relationship up over the course of this movie and at the end when uh, Han is being frozen she tells him I love you and he says I know This is a famous thing about this movie. Everybody loves this. And the script was written as I love you. I love you too. And Kirsch, which is what Kirschner is called by everybody, uh, (laughs) actually was like, I don't feel this. It puts Han Solo in kind of a, a secondary position because he's repeating it back. So he's like, uh, he kept working on it and going through it and trying different things. And he just couldn't get the feel for it. And then finally, like, I think everybody kind of was just fed up. They're like, okay, we're going to do it one more time before lunch. Let's just do it. They shot it. And Harrison Ford just said, I know. And Kirsch was like, okay, that's it. We did it. Literally no one else agreed with him. <laughs> like, people on the set were like, what? You want to break? We? You're going with that? He goes to George Lucas later. He's like, okay, this is what we have. And Lucas is like, you shot it the right way, like from the script, right? Because he was just like not having it. And yet Kirsch kept fighting, fighting, fighting. He's like, I love you too is not Han. He would not say that. So they kind of made this agreement that that they would have two cuts of the movie. One of them would have, I love you, I know. One of them would have, I love you, I love you too. So they first showed the I Love You, I Know, and the entire theater just like broke up. They loved it. They thought it was amazing. And to George Lucas's extremely great credit, he goes to Kirsch after that screening and says, we don't need to show the other one. You're right. It's I Know. And, you know, that just shows to me how important Kirsch is to Empire Strikes Back and the success and and the enjoyment I personally get out of this film,
0: yeah. So Kirschner was actually uh, George Lucas's teacher at USC. He saw him as a mentor. And when Kirschner was originally offered the directorial position in Empire Strikes Back, you know, he wanted to turn it down. You know, and his agent was like, "No, no, you you should do this." And if we didn't have him as the director on this film, we wouldn't have this connection to it. Because he's able to bring in honesty. He's able to bring in honesty in a science fiction film. We're dealing with creatures that you wouldn't even believe. You wouldn't be able to make heads or tails out of them. You know, and they have fantastic names like Bosk <laughs> and Dengar and you know, like, you know, Boba Fett. Like what is that a drink? You know what I mean? I'd like a Boba Fett, please.
1: You're going a Boba Loca to get a Boba Fett.
0: <laughs> you know, so it's just like you have this fantastical story and Kirshner grounded it. And I think that's what we really responded to. And he also was able to find these funny moments within, but they weren't forced, they were just organized organic
1: yes and it was character driven yes like the reason that c-3po is a really funny character is because he you know is a robot and he also like has trouble you know processing human emotion but at the same time he wants to be helpful and you know i think we see that more in this movie than we saw it before we were talking about in hoth uh in the hoth sequence where Luke and Han are trapped outside and it's going to be freezing cold and they don't have a very strong chance of coming back alive we see R2 getting emotional about that he's sad he's scared that Luke isn't going to come back and you know 3PO is trying to console everyone he's trying to console R2 he's trying to console Leia you know, and when he tries to con- to console her by talking about the chance, you know the the statistical chance of it being okay, he realizes he said the wrong thing and tries to correct himself, you know, and it's because he cares. We see these robots caring. and I think that that's amazing. It's not something we're used to. And then of course, chewie, who <laughs> Lucas describes as a big dog basically it is super emotional in this film. We very much see the depth of his relationship with Han and you know, it makes Chewie so important and so relatable.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you feel Chewbacca more than ever. Do you feel all of them more than ever? Again, that's why Luke leaves his training. That's why he goes to what what the film presents as certain death. It doesn't seem like Luke is going to make it at all, but he cares this much that, that he wants it to happen. Princess Leia in this film, there's so much more to her. Oh, yeah. You know, she's an excellent leader. We see more of that in this film, which I'm very happy about, though the opening scroll of the film decides that Luke is the head of the rebel yeah. alliance yeah. when we see you know princess leia telling the fighter pilots on hoth exactly what to do to take care of business you know then there's like some goofball pilot that's just like uh what about the star destroyers or some dumbass thing like that
1: <laughs> he, he says i think he says uh two fighters against a star destroyer cuz this is like their plan is that they're sending out two fighters With the transport to try to get away. And they're going to be shooting the ion cannon at the same time. And, you know, much to her credit, Princess Leia, who we definitely see shades of General Leia here. Oh, yeah. Doesn't just say, well, screw you. You can go sit in the corner and die here instead of on the frickin' ship. Okay, guy. She is cool about it and just continues to explain everything. And, of course, she has uh, John Ratzenberger, better known to us, I think, as Cliff Clavin from Cheers. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, after she finishes her serious speech, he jumps in and like, Okay, everybody to your stations, let's go. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and it's really hardcore, you know what I mean? It's like so hardcore, and he's like, does like this double thumbs move, and just, I don't know, like, Clavin, well, uh, John Ratzenberger, but let's be honest, (laughs) he's Clavin, okay? I grew up in Massachusetts, he's Cliff Clavin, (laughs) he's a genius, he's got a bajillion jobs He's awesome. So, you know, Clavin is also earlier in the film saying that the blast doors must be closed. And that's what actually, you know, shuts off Luke and Han from coming back to the base for an entire night while they're out there in the ice and the snow. I mean, if they didn't have that tauntaun, you know, to just kind of tuck in with, you know, they would be in, in deep trouble. Another reason that we like this movie so much is because things happen so quickly. Yeah. Within the first 15 minutes, you know, we have Han saying, I got to go. I got a bounty hunter after me. We see more of the Han Leia situation. We see Luke get attacked and you're like, oh my God, what's going to happen to him? We see Han, he's going to split. And then he's like, oh no, I'm going to go get Luke. And they're like, you can't do that. And he's like, well, I'll see you in hell. You know, it's like, this is all... (laughs) In the first 15 minutes. You know, then we get Luke back to the base and, you know, we're getting things going. Then we get our quick uh, incest kiss, you know, very (laughs) famous. And yeah, then we have. You know, the Empire coming in. I mean, it didn't even mention the, the, the Imperial droid. I mean, that's the first shot in the movie, is the Imperial droid. That, that sets everything off. That's yeah. how they get found on Hoth.
1: Well, and it's interesting to note, I think, that this movie starts with the big action sequence. I mean, of course, we do have the big lightsaber battle at the end, but that's more of like a personal fight, mm. whereas at the beginning is when we have like the... The speeders and the shooting and the add ats and all this kind of stuff going on, which is insane and super fast-paced and awesome. And it's interesting because both Lucas and Kirshner were, like, a little bit worried about this movie because it's not exactly... A traditional sequel. I mean, in terms of the word sequel, it's fine, because a sequel is really just a continuation of a story. But, you know, Lucas kind of looked at this piece as the middle of one big project, which was New Hope to Return of the Jedi. And, you know, Kirshner looked at it that way too. And his take on it was that it was a second act of a play, or a second movement of a symphony, Where things slow down a little bit, you get a little bit more contemplative, you dig in a little bit and learn more about the characters and the situations, and it's kind of the meat of the trilogy, because this is where you start to care. Like, they establish in the first movie, then in this movie, you learn more about your characters, you become more of a part of it. And I think that's what makes this so successful, not only that it was well done, you know, that's a great story, but that the people telling the story really understand how they need to tell the story.
0: Well, when they put it in the framework of a war film, you can really understand the stakes. This heightens everything, every decision, you know, that you make, because It could be your last second. The whole place could blow up. You have no idea what's going to happen. Is there a tomorrow? You'd like to think so, but it feels very shaky. I mean, the Rebels, you know, they took out the Death Star and you would think after they blew up something that's basically the size of a planet full of bad guys that that would have taken care of it. But, oh, no, the Empire has so many more people. You know, Darth Vader has the biggest fucking Star Destroyer <laughs> yeah. you've ever seen. There are these other Star Destroyers that you thought were enormous. Then you see his and you're like, oh, those aren't shit. You yeah, know
1: like three of them doesn't even make a one.
0: No, and they're Coming Right for these rebels, you know, they they are not going to stop. You can tell from the beginning of this film, from this first battle, that things are going to be rough. You know, I mean, the Empire really gets in there, you know, and they just start they just start blowing away everything. I'd be one of the craziest points that, that we <laughs> we loved is, you know, it's funny, but it's funny in kind of a, I don't know, gallows humor kind of way. It is Dak, right? You know, Luke's co-pilot in the snow speeder. You know, they're all excited right before they're gonna go out to like take care of the empire, right? And Dak says, Right now I feel I could take on the whole empire by myself.
1: <laughs> yeah. And then he promptly flies off with Luke, immediately freaks out because everything in the speeder is not working exactly the way that he thinks it should, and then gets shot and dies.
0: Yeah, I mean, he's just like, I I don't know. I don't think he could take on the whole Empire. I, I like the enthusiasm, you know, but it's... I know we've seen this a lot of times in war films that you see the people that are gung ho for battle. They're ready for battle, and then they get into battle, and it's not what they expected. You know, because none of it is predictable. And honestly, in this battle, I mean, you have these massive walking armored dogs shooting lasers at you. I thought they looked like turtles. To me, it was like a, Ooh, the a turtle
1: on stilts. That's what Ooh. I thought about with the hat outs. The
0: neck. I could really, with the neck, I could really see that.
1: Yeah, that's what I always thought about. But yeah, that I love how, and I said this to y'all while are we watching it, I love how everything has to be anthropomorphized. So like everything has to have like, you know, the qualities of an animal or human, so the, the Ad-Ads have to just have like a head and legs, you know, the little uh, droid, the little probe droid has like little arm claws and stuff. And he kind of looks like a little weird kind of weird beetle or something. So I love how everything kind of has a face, even if it's like, you know, a machine.
0: Well, the big transport that the rebels get off, you know, I mean, let's take a moment to appreciate the first transport is away. Yay. Yay! Yeah, like, I love that part. I, I've been saying that for years. But that that first transport that manages to get out of Hoth, that looks like half of, like, a, a beetle shell, doesn't it? It
1: totally does, yeah. It looks like a, like, I don't know, two cockroaches fused together or, I don't know, a pill bug. I don't know, but something. Yeah, it looks like, it
0: looks like a, oh God. Yeah, it looks like, kind of, all right, like, the top is kind of like a cockroach shell, but it's like the cockroach somehow just got cut in half horizontally you know because it's kind of got this junk hanging out the bottom i i don't know but well, it's <laughs> i like that they
1: said that you know their point was that the the transports looked kind of janky mm-hmm. like they were just kind of put together you know from junk or something and they don't really look like you know nice and shiny because it gives you like the sense that the rebels don't have the resources of the empire and they're fighting as, as hard as they can fight with kind of like junkyard crap
0: (laughs) yeah it's like the outsiders right
1: (laughs) yeah they're scrappy
0: yeah the empire is like the socias yeah you know the rebels (laughs) are the greasers we really needed like matt Dillon and patrick swayze to help tell this story i think that would have been good Dairy and soda pop but you know when we have this movie and we have this kind of a a battle i mean there is massive massive casualties you know you see dak go you see more of you know the 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 snow speeder people the rebels go down i mean dak actually gets crushed by an ad at yes
1: after he's already dead and like just paced out in the back of the speeder you know, then Luke goes into the snow. He goes down because he gets hit. And this at at comes and barely, he, he barely makes it out. Yeah.
0: It, it's terrible. It, it's it's like, yeah, th- there's so much tension in this. These battle scenes are incredible. And they're incredible with these fantastical machines. Yeah. You know, I, I you got to hand it to them. And then we go back to the Rebel base. Where people are still kind of calling out orders and talking to the ships and the transports, and the whole place is falling apart.
1: Yeah, and it is just like an HQ, like a war headquarters HQ with, like, you know, Carrie Fisher as Leia is in there, you know, running the place, you know, telling everybody where to go. She doesn't want to leave because this is her cause, you know?
0: Yeah, she doesn't want to leave at all because she is, again, the true leader of the yeah. Rebel Alliance. You know, it's like, yeah, she is the boss. Like, Han literally drags her out of there. And yeah. He's like, we have to go. And you know what? They do have to go because if they didn't have her, I mean, who would be leading it?
1: They, I think it would just fall apart. Like, yeah. you know... I'm not crapping on Luke because he's clearly grown since New Hope. But Luke's on his own path. Yeah, he is. You know? He's 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 doing his own thing. He's not the leader of the rebel force. He might be a leader of like the rebel pilot force or something, but he's not like running the whole show. And that's what I think the crawl is trying to kind of pass off on me.
0: No, I think what is the most accurate thing, and this is a paraphrase, is when Luke is flying away in the X-Wing and he has R2 with him. And R2 is like, do you want me to plot the course? And he's like, no, that's all right. I want to keep it on manual control for a while. You know what I mean? That's really what Luke is. Luke is a guy that wants to keep it on manual control, and that's cool. Yeah. But he is not somebody that that you can count on. Luke's kind of like that cool friend you have that you can't really count on, but when they blow into town, you're like, all right, let's party. He's got his
1: hand on his own hardware. (laughs) Bruce Springsteen would tell us, you know.
0: Bruce would just, he would be thrilled. You know, he would be, thr- <laughs> like, if Bruce was in Hoth during this battle, oh, he would my be God. living his best life. He would have had Clarence Clemens on top of an ad at just blowing that horn.
1: Well, he, lo- you know, as much as George Lucas loves, you know, a nickname <laughs> or a name, like he comes up with these crazy names for these characters. I would love to see what Bruce Springsteen could do with that. He's got like crazy Davey. I don't know what we have here.
0: Crazy Dengar.
1: (laughs) Crazy Dengar. No, I do think that it's a super smart point about this being, you know, this having this sequence in the front of the movie does turn it into, uh, you know, a war film because we get the war going real quick before you move into, like, the more personal journey of Luke with his hand on his own hardware, (laughs) he's confident at the beginning of this. We see a new Luke, you know, that feels really good, like, because I feel like at the end of New Hope, you know, he's a pilot, but he's kind of, like, you know, feeling it out, you know, and figuring things out and maybe doesn't have that confidence yet. Here, he's been doing this for a while. He knows he's good at it. He's using the Force, at least on a limited basis. We see Mm -hmm. him, like, use the Force to get the lightsaber when he's in the cave with the wampa. You know, he uses that. And, I mean, I just had to ask, did you try to use the Force when you were a kid to, like, zap things into your hand? Do you still try to use the Force? Of course I
0: do. Yeah, I I, like, look at things, and I'm like, let's see if we can move it. I try to pick the lightest object that I can. I get, like, a... You know, thin sheet of paper, and I try to see if it'll move. I just stare at it. That's
1: the real loot kind of a move that you're making there, because size doesn't matter according to Yoda. <laughs> it's all the same.
0: It's all the same. Well, it's size
1: a, matters not.
0: When I find myself staring at a piece of paper, I'll try to make it move and then like i don't know if i find like the corner like wiggling the slightest bit i get excited but you know it's usually just you know like a breeze like you you breathed on it (laughs) just i just exhaled you know and and that's you know that was like my big force move you know it's just like i try i do try i i've i've never had it happen it would be cool it would be great you know just to be able to just stay seated and grab some things from another room
1: I'm lazy and that's when I would use the force for like if I had the force I would use it to like get a coke out of the fridge so I don't have to get up or for you because you'll ask me for one and I'm like oh I don't want to get up I would just open it and zap it to me like bing, and then i would just give it actually I would just zap it right over to you (laughs) but knowing me I would like overpower it and I would like Darth Vader it into you like when he's fighting with Luke and just throwing parts of the ship at Luke. You know, you just catch a Coke can to the head and just be laid out. Because <laughs> I'm just too strong
0: in the force. You got it. Look, when you have that force strength, you got to be careful. <laughs> I understand. I'm dealing with a powerful warrior here. I got it. I got it.
1: But yeah, I, I actually love Luke in this. And I love his story, even though he's a complete goober. In a lot of ways, like that's, that's one of the funny things about Luke is that like, you know, Leia is like such an unbelievable badass from like the beginning Mm -hmm. and they're the same age, you know, but they have had like a super different upbringing because Luke is basically like a backwater hayseed who like grew up on the moisture farm, like a complete loser and he doesn't know anything and Leia was like, you know, the daughter of a senator and like, you know, she knows all about diplomacy and strategy and she's educated. And, you know, it just really shows you that twins can be different, <laughs> I guess. Um, but, you know, we got to love Luke because he's kind of like us in a way, you know, he's kind of the character. I think that even if you love Han, and you love Leia, like whatever your favorite character is, I think that you kind of have to relate to Luke. Um, Because even though you're not the chosen one, and he is, you know, he's this guy who's just learning all about this stuff, and he is just so hungry to, like, do something and achieve something, and that's what I love about him is that he feels like he has a lot of potential, and he really wants to live up to it, and that's kind of the kind of person I've always been, so I can really relate to Luke, even though he's a goob.
0: Well, you are the Quesat Saterrack.
1: <laughs> Quesat Saterrack. Yeah. I know, right? I mean, we it's it's funny to watch this after we just did our Dune episode. Um, was that episode 44 a couple back? Mm-hmm. Cuz we really delved into Dune um, with the book and both of the films, uh, the 80, the 80s one by Lynch and the Villeneuve one that just came out uh, last year. So we really saw the Star Wars Dune kind of parallels. And oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, we definitely have a Paul Atreides, Luke Skywalker kind of a situation going on.
0: But we don't really have an Uncle Owen parallel.
1: <laughs> no. Or cause... an Aunt
0: Baru. I mean, we're, you know, without Uncle Owen, that is, you know, the one failing of this film. I mean,. <laughs> He was just such a positive force.
1: (laughs) He was not. That's why. (laughs) That's why we see Luke flourishing in this movie.
0: Mm. I mean, what Baru? um, What did Baru do?
1: Baru was a good person, but she was like uh, an enabler. She enabled Uncle Owen to be kind of a d. (laughs) And without that, like without being pushed down and held down my uncle owen luke is like really flourishing and moisturized in this movie
0: yeah because it was like uncle owen you know it was kind of like the overlook but in the desert you know <laughs> that that was definitely the vibe <laughs> but i mean no i mean in all seriousness uh <laughs> you know the uncle owen character is very similar to people that parents that, that don't want to see their kids go into an unproven profession <laughs> uh, you know you want to be an actor no you know what i mean you want to go ahead you want to be a musician why don't you go ahead and work in the garage on this uh you know i don't know this fucking trans am i don't know i'm not a mechanic but well you get my you know, something
1: practical
0: exactly
1: owen wants luke to have a fallback option he doesn't want him to you know go become a Jedi you know right. and also it's kind of like I guess if you're if your kid wants to go be an actor but his dad was an actor and also a supreme evil being uh, because of his acting <laughs> because really that's what we have here
0: yeah it's like it's like you know uh what what we say evil sir Lawrence olivier yeah 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 yeah
1: or just regular sir Lawrence olivier (laughs) maybe (laughs) i don't know how nice he was who knows he seemed very severe and rebecca at least i don't know (laughs) i love that idea that owen is just like all right well you could study being a jedi in summer camp but then you have to go and Go to, you know, moisture farming college.
0: I think if Luke said to him, I want to be a magician, I think he would have had more respect for him. I don't know. I mean,
1: again, being a Jedi is kind of like being a magician. Like, he kind of wants to go over to magic college and become a magician.
0: Well, but you see, okay, if you're a magician, you know, he could be like, look, Owen... I know about all these families in the area that would love a magician for their kid's birthday party. So he could have a business plan in effect with that.
1: Yeah, if it's like a side business and it doesn't affect the moisture season, it's okay.
0: Yeah, I, I mean... They got to
1: get that moisture done and then Luke can go next year to pilot school or wherever he wants to go, you know? But, you know, I think Uncle Owen always has the sense of... And I feel like everybody has the sense, but except Luke, cause he doesn't know, but like everybody is so freaked out that Luke is going to turn into his father, mm. you know? I mean, that's like a thing that keeps coming up, you know? And I just find it so silly personally in the scene, like that we talked about already where Luke is like, I'm going to go help my friends. And <laughs> Obi-Wan and Yoda are like he's just like his dad because he's too emotional and I'm like just hold up okay Luke being too emotional is I'm gonna stop training to go help my friends Anakin being too emotional is I'm gonna murder children I think we could probably see a difference there if we tried really hard <laughs> okay like Jedis are supposed to be brilliant geniuses but they can't tell the difference between those two emotionalities come on guys get a grip
0: well and they're pretty emotional themselves the discussions between ben and yoda i mean they're really chopping it up like you know it's like yoda is in the uh you know his little hut there with luke and he's hanging out and this is when he's being like really chaotic and i love that you (laughs) know that's our
1: introduction to him, and that's probably why we fell in love with him because he's kind of nuts
0: yeah when he's like whacking on r2 with the cane (laughs) (laughs) give me that give me that bar
1: (laughs) he wants this light he wants the little flashlight that he found and he just doesn't want to let
0: it go no no (laughs) you know it's like i mean yeah i i love that it's just like then he's like you know in there and he's you know got some like stew or something going and you know it's just like then like luke kind of freaks out and hits his head and then it's like business time with ben you know it's like i told you he was bs yeah i mean you know that's it it's like ben this kid's bs
1: yeah luke is just like i really want to do this guys and like i'm okay i'm ready i could do this like he's enthusiastic he wants to do it And Yoda is, like, so crotchety right there. He's, like, he's too impatient. He just wants adventure. He only looks to the future. He doesn't want to be in the present moment, you know. And I know that's part of the philosophy. But, like, Luke is also, like, a kid still, you know. He's not a grown-up at this point. And he has, like, some of that enthusiasm of a, a young person who's trying to, you know, learning what they're talented at. And wanting to explore it and learn more about it. And, you know, I guess maybe it's because Yoda's, like, over 800 years old. Maybe.
0: Well, he also has, you know, this flair for the dramatic. When Luke says he won't be scared. And then, like, Yoda's face gets creepy. And he's like, you will be. You will be. (laughs) You know, it's like, whoa. And then we have that later when Luke finally says, hey, I'm going to go help out my friends. Peace. Peace. Okay, And so he's flying away, and then kind of in the, the glow of his ship, we still have Ben and Yoda there. And then they're just like kind of crossing them off, like, well, we fucked that one up. Well, and it's like, there's <laughs> another one. Don't worry about it. All right. You we know, always like, have they,
1: that backup plan.
0: <laughs> yeah. So it's just like, I, I, I don't know. It's, it's kind of weird. And you know what I think it is when we go back to the differences between Lucas and Kirshner? As Lucas is interested in... And playing a scene and heightening a scene he's not thinking in my opinion necessarily about the overall picture and how it fits in and with Kirshner he looked at it as you know a, a complete story now again like you said it's the second movement and, and a three-part piece however everything in here lines up it it checks with everything else
1: yeah and it i you're absolutely right that that is a kirschner thing because we can see in other movies where lucas does kind of maintain more of the directorial control that he is a lot more concerned with the plot and the story being developed and he looks at it almost more like a chessboard where he's moving people around to get them how he wants them to be. Mm -hmm. Kirshner is looking for the motivation within the people to drive them where they are going, not where George Lucas is trying to herd them. You know, and I'm sure that's why Lucas really wanted to work with, like, CGI creatures and and characters so that he would have even more control over, you know, what the character was doing without having an actor involved um, or having to have a puppeteer and six assistants or whatever moving things around. Um, But I think you're making a very smart point there about what makes this movie... So special and so stand out from all nine of the movies, really.
0: Well, and even the other extensions, you know, like Rogue One and Solo. Mm -hmm. Though I do have to say I'm a big fan of Rogue One and Solo. Rogue One is extremely emotional also. Great lead up to episode four, A New Hope. I I mean, watching those together is perfection. But I want to go to your point about Lucas wanting to have control. Because we do see differences and the different cuts of this film now in some of the changes you don't see them that much you know it might be a tweak with the lighting that doesn't seem that significant to you or i don't know maybe they're very small generally but there are some bigger things that we noticed the biggest thing is the emperor so originally when the emperor uh, came about in this film lucas had no idea what he wanted the emperor to look like so the emperor was actually um uh a woman and a a monkey and and they were kind of crossed together and that's what we see as the emperor and uh, they did have an actor that was voicing the character that was not ian McDiarmid. it was actually uh his name was clive Clive revel i believe Yeah, that was the voice of the emperor in this film. Years later, he's like, let's bring in Ian and let's, you know, make it uniform. So we have the the same emperor throughout. Um, We also have uh, Boba Fett's voice is different. Uh, There's an actor by the name of Jason Wingreen that does the voice in the original cut. And then later that was changed to Tamara Morrison. And he played Boba Fett in the prequels. Yeah. Um. You know, some of the changes that Lucas made in some of the other films, namely the Force ghosts at the end of Return of the Jedi. They hurt my soul. I don't yeah. want to talk about them. Um, the
1: first time that I saw the end of Return of the Jedi with Hayden Christensen as the Force ghost of Darth Vader, I, like, left the room. Like, yeah. I couldn't deal with it. Yeah. Because it didn't really make sense to me. Um, Not because, like, I have some super problem with Hayden Christensen as Anakin. Because I really don't at this point. You know, I think everybody's kind of wrestled with their response to the prequels (laughs) at this point. And and I'm pretty cool with them, mostly, right now. But the problem that I have is that Anakin looks like he looked when he was young. But, like, you know, you have the Force ghost of Obi-Wan. And Yoda right next to him. And it's not like we see Ewan McGregor instead of Alec Guinness. Or that Yoda has been restored to, like, you know, his swinging younger days. We just see, you know, their old ass self, who they were when they died. But Anakin is kind of, like, restored to prior to when he, you know, turned into Darth Vader. I just don't think that... I don't feel it. And it was too jarring for me but the palpatine change i don't really find jarring for some reason i'm i buy it and maybe it's just because i'm totally freaked out by monkey eyes palpatine because it's creepy it's really gross
0: it is creepy i mean I think with, uh, you know, Hayden Christensen, what I was thinking about was Dracula. You know, when you kill a vampire, they <laughs> always show you, right? Like Lost Boys. So it's like, you know, it's funny because this movie does have actually a lot of horror elements. which oh, is, yeah. You know, that's not something that you would expect, you know, in, in a PG film. You know, that it's like, really? It's for kids, right? I mean, so, Lucas says it's for
1: kids. He yeah. says it over and over and like... Some of the decisions that he made, he made because he was afraid he was going to scare kids, you know. So I think it's fair to call it a kids movie.
0: It's kids movie then. I, I mean, it's, it's just like there's such a tone on this film. It's heavy from the very beginning. You can really feel the weight. You can feel the pressure. You can feel the tension. You can really feel Darth Vader is what I get. You know, from this film. I mean Darth Vader is such a large presence in this. And Darth Vader, it looks like they really just shined up the helmet. You know, he looks really just just really sharp in this. He looks great, you know? <laughs> and
1: we get a we get a quick glimpse of what's under there. Oh yeah. In that one scene, you know, we see his kind of deformed, like, yellowing head. And it and it is scary. Like, I never thought of this as having horror elements before. And then when we were watching it, one of the 72 times we just watched it last week. (laughs) You said that, and I started thinking about it, and I was like, dude, you nailed it. And one of the points that you made, which I'm not trying to snake your wave Mm -hmm. here, but one of the points that you made was about that scene where we see, you know, Darth Vader's back of his gross head is that it reminded you of Jason from the first Friday the 13th movie, and you're correct.
0: And that came out... Uh, the same year, the first film. Yeah. So it it's it's really wild how they do that. Also, when Luke goes to the cave in Dagobah, you know, and Darth Vader comes out of the darkness and then they go for slow motion. Yeah. And it's very scary. You're not quite sure what's going to happen. I mean, I just didn't really feel like Luke was going to make it through the film. Um, and when he beheads this Darth Vader in the cave that was nuts. I'm like, oh my God, he cut his head off. And then the mask just blows up and then it's Luke's face. So it's like, you think to yourself, oh my God, I could be the bad guy too. Like Luke is, you know, our hero, right? And then he's also the bad guy. And then you also think about, oh my God, you know, what does this mean? You know, like, is he going bad? Is this Is this going to be his turn? Yeah. You know, there's just... Dagobah is scary. I mean, we're in a creepy swamp. Yoda, you know, yeah, we think he's funny and he's cool now. But when you first see Yoda, I don't know that I would trust him. If (laughs) I was like... If I had just kind of landed in this swamp and this person showed up and was just... I don't know, kind of a little too friendly, yeah. acting weird. Like, what's going to happen in the hut? What is in the stew? There's
1: snakes everywhere. Yes. Everywhere. Yes. I mean, snakes are creepy. Hard stop. And then you have a million <laughs> of them all over the place. It's just like, oh, gross. But, you know, I think, like, also Darth Vader becomes, like, a really smart kind of horror villain here. hmm And the fact that we see Luke seeing himself in that suit or in that helmet is scary. I mean, let's talk about that scene a little bit deeper for a minute, because I think that that scene is one of the most important scenes in the series. It's part of Luke's training and his learning, right? And I kind of dug into it this time in a way that I had not before um, when I was trying to like analyze it, you know? The whole thing is, and you and I both have this discussion, when Luke is about to go into this cave, Yoda says to him, you don't need your weapons. You know, and John, you know, we've seen this. So in retrospect, John is like, but he runs into this Darth Vader. You know, of course he needs his weapons. But I think what Yoda is saying there is that he, what you bring into the cave is what you will find there He kind of says that and then he tells him not to bring his weapons. And Luke is like, Oh no, I'm bringing my weapons. And because of that, Luke is kind of bringing this warlike sensibility into the cave. And that's what he ends up confronting. So I think what we're supposed to understand here is if Luke could have been more mature, could have gone in there and stood on his own, he wouldn't have had the same kind of confrontation he wouldn't have had this experience that really serves as a warning to him about the path that he's on.
0: It's a scary path. I mean, and it's very easy to go to the dark side because you have all of this power and everyone is always in a battle of some kind and your own emotions can cloud you and you may not realize that that's happening. Yeah. You know, it's... And I mean, we also have facing yourself and that seems to be a theme in this somewhat as well when we go to cloud city which is eerie from the beginning it, it's it, it's very white and very clean you know it, it feels like an institution of some kind It's really interesting it's disturbing right and and it's just like okay and i mean when we first meet lando calrissian who i can't wait to talk about when we first meet lando you know, Lando seems mad at Han. You know, I mean, the people at Bespin were shooting at the Millennium Falcon. This is just, just not the kind of greeting you expect. No. But to get to the point, when they go inside of Bespin, you know, the rest of the party is ahead and C-3PO is behind. And this door opens up and there is another robot that looks exactly like C-3PO, except it's silver. And it says, Which... We guess kind of means fuck you or yeah, something along those lines. I guess it's lines. not
1: supposed to mean that. I don't know. But I'm telling you in this scene it definitely is like get the fuck out of my way. Yeah, he
0: thinks he's bullshit. This this silver 3PO tells R3PO to eat shit. So, you know, R3PO then kind of goes in cuz he's kind of curious about this area. And it it's like a it's like a murder mystery. Again, we feel that horror element. And again, it reminds me of of friday the 13th i mean this is so weird you know i'm on this friday the 13th kick but yeah this reminds me of friday the 13th because in friday the 13th there's this shot in the woods and it's a pov shot of this person in the jeep getting killed you know it's like so it's like we have this pov shot of 3po who gets shot and blown apart We can see part of his body on the floor. We cut out of the room. This door slams shut. It's spooky, these doors. I mean, they talked about it in the commentary. These doors have like teeth on them that lock them into the ground. This is not a very good place. They said they wanted it to be like hell inside of heaven because it's a beautiful place, but it's a terrifying place. Yeah. And when we actually, I mean, the scariest part of this whole thing is the final confrontation between Luke and Vader. And when we go into that carbon freezing room, when Luke gets in there and the door is shut and then Vader is up there, you know, on top You know, on that platform, it is very much like what he saw in the cave. And Vader is terrifying. Now, this is another point that Georgia noticed when we were watching the 1980 cut. There are some different changes with the, the color in these films. In the 1980 film, when they're in that chamber... All of the lights on the stairs that you see are red, and then behind, you know, you see blue, and then, of course, you see so much smoke, and the blue and the red are the colors of Luke and Vader's lightsabers, so you just really feel like you're in for danger. I mean, red makes you think of death, right? Yeah. And it's just like, ah, I, I mean, it's again, he's right there. That battle is horrifying. They battle their way through so many levels of that place.
1: And that gets one thing that you pointed out was that it gets smaller and smaller. Yes. So they start in the carbon freezing chamber, which is pretty large room, even mm-hmm. though it's insane looking It's super dark in the in the um, revision cuts We have kind of washed the red into more of an orange, dark orange color. And Vader's lightsaber almost looks kind of dark pink instead of red in places to me. And it could just be our TV, you know, converting something. But that was our perception from watching the different ones. But, you know, the red and the blue is a lot more contrasting. Um, between like good and bad and what you had mentioned was as they continue on like Luke goes into other areas but it's like he's almost being herded into a choke point so that he can't escape and eventually that leads him out onto the end of this you know platform high, high high up in the air and he really has no way to escape and he's cornered, you know, so Darth Vader's like really hard pushing him at this point about, you know, joining the dark side, and, you know, he makes this argument, like, you don't understand your power yet, you know, you could do so much, we could work together, we could, we could overthrow the emperor and rule together, and then drops off that he's I am your father, like, that's, like, the big thing that's going to convince him. And Luke, at this point, kind of has no choice but to either go with it or die.
0: Well, he's got a choice. And, and I mean, this is, you know, indicative of our generation, you know? <laughs> I mean, Vader is like, come with me. It is the only way. And Luke is like, you know what? It isn't. And he drops into a fucking abyss because he is not doing it this is the original fuck you i won't do what you told me moment he is not having it he is not going down that path and this whole film that has been like teasing us with luke's gonna turn bad luke's gonna turn bad they pushed him to the absolute limit i mean he is messed up you know he's got his hand cut off You know what I mean? He's all beat up. And it's scary. It's terrifying.
1: John and I are both, like, very scared of heights. So for us to, like, watch Luke make this choice to, like, drop into this pit that you can't even see the bottom of. And I guess he uses some kind of, you know, 4 to kind of (laughs) redirect himself into some vacuum tube that shoots him out the bottom of the thing. But then he's like hanging off of this, you know, you can't see anything because this uh, mining thing is in the clouds and under, you know, he's underneath it. And if he drops, he's dropping into nothingness. This is a gas planet. Like there's no ground. Like I don't know what you would do. Like I don't even know what that would be if you fell off of this thing. And he can't get back in. It's, it like makes the pit of my stomach drop out when I see this scene, even now that I know, I know what's going to happen. I know that he's going to like have a mental connection with Leia and she's going to come pick him up in the Falcon. I know it. But even still, I'm watching him hang there with just one hand because his right hand is gone and he's right handed. You know, yeah, and it's it's scary.
0: It's like very, very scary. Well, it plays on all of your fears, you know. I, I mean, during the the battle with Vader, Vader just comes out of the darkness at one point, and Vader is wild. He is unchained, yeah. and you know, I you have all of that, and then when he does make that drop. I I guess he is using his forciness, as you put it somewhat, but I, 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 I like, it. I like that. I'm, I think forciness. that's good. He's all yeah. forcey, you know, so he's, he's forcing down there, you know, and so it's like, you know, he goes into this tube, but I still don't feel like he has everything together because no. he, he stops, you know, in this tube and he thinks, okay. All right, I'm gonna get out. I'm gonna figure this out, and that's when the bottom opens up, and then he drops down. You know, like you said, onto that weather vein. You know, it's just like the back of his legs hit that weather vein. He's hanging there. One hand. Uh, I mean, ah, uh, and he's trying uh, to reach up because the the door, like the trap door above him that that dropped to let him out, is closing, and he's reaching up that one hand, and it's just like he's trying, but he just doesn't have the juice. You don't feel like he has and it any power left.
1: Closing on oh. him. I mean, and oh. now he's marooned, like fully, like he's like you when you broke the window of your neighbor. He's doomed.
0: <laughs> Yeah, and if you don't know what we're talking about there, you can refer back to our our Bob's Burgers episode where I tell a great story about how I accidentally broke my neighbor's sliding door and said, I'm doomed. (laughs) Which,
1: I mean, that's really the whole story there. And it's amazing and I love it. It's one of my favorites.
0: Um, Yeah, I'm overdramatic. I'm very overdramatic.
1: I mean, so what? So what? You grew up watching like Luke Skywalker, being like, no, when he found <laughs> out Darth Vader is his father, and I am not making fun of Mark Hamill there because no. I think that's an amazing performance, made even more so by the fact that like nobody knew about this line.
0: Yeah, talk about that.
1: Like I didn't, I wasn't aware of this, but like, like Lucas was so protective of the secret that Darth Vader was Luke's father that like by the time the film actually came out there, the estimate is that only about 12 people knew about this. Wow. It was not in the script. Um, they had told other people different things. They told other people that like this, the line was that Obi-Wan killed your father, which is also would have been shocking, Yeah, but like not, not even 1% as shocking as I am your father. So what I read in this interview with Kirshner is that it wasn't in the script. Lucas told him and he told Hamill like right before the performance. And this is, it goes back and forth. I'm not sure like what's true because I hear different stories or I've read different stories. One of the stories is that Kirshner just coached him through it without telling him and just said to him what to say and what to do. But then the other story is that he told Mark Hamill and said, I know it, Lucas knows it, and now you know it. So if this leaks, we know who did it. Like, he really was, like, in his face about it. Like, you can't leak this. So, like, nobody knew. Nobody knew. And uh, that is a lot to hold on to if Hamill did know, you know, to be doing that scene and just be like, totally shocked and he plays it so darn well i mean it's like really the end of his innocence right there he's been growing up and he's been changing and learning and you know learning darker things because again like we said this is a darker movie but at that moment It's just like, that's the end. That's the end of any innocence that he had left. Luke has to grow up now. And we know that that's that's the momentum that we have going into the next film.
0: Yeah, you definitely see a changed Luke when we get to Return of the Jedi. He's a very serious man at this point. He's a hard man. You know, he's calm. But he is direct, and he is powerful, and he knows exactly how to expend his energy. And
1: he's, you know, his whole life has been a lie, basically, up to this point. And he has had all these people who have been mentoring him, who have been his friends. And some of these people knew this, you know. Obviously, Obi-Wan and Yoda, who he's trusted, knew about it. And he even is saying that, like at the end, it's kind of heartbreaking when he's on the Falcon and he has time to like actually reflect on what's happened. He's saying, like Ben, why didn't you tell me this? You know, like yeah. he trusted, like he trusted Obi Wan, and Obi Wan did not tell him. And it, it's you know, also he he grew up with his uncle and aunt, and they didn't tell him. You know, they didn't tell him that this happened and they knew so it's like all the adult figures in his life have either lied to him straight up or have omitted the truth and it's a breaking point for him
0: it's absolutely a breaking point point. and if you look at luke's costume in the third film he's wearing all black and i firmly feel it's because he's in mourning for himself. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it, yeah, Luke Skywalker does not have an easy ride. I mean, mm-hmm. that's you know, the idea is that you know, he's on this moisture farm, he has to deal with Baru and Owen. Well, not really, Baru's cool, but you know, you see Luke on this moisture farm and you think it's just kind of like a, a farm boy with a regular life, and mm-hmm. you know, it, it's simple, but it isn't. It's very difficult,
1: yeah. I wanted to revisit something that you were talking about quickly about facing yourself and one of the things that we really noticed this time and that also was discussed on the commentary after we had already talked about it has to do with Han and Lando and Han meeting Lando again is kind of like another version of that facing yourself because Lando is kind of like an unevolved version of Han. Like The person who Lando is in Empire is the person that Han used to be. And because of his experiences working with the Rebels, he's changed. So when he goes back and and sees Lando again, it's like he's seeing his old self. And it's also like Lando is seeing who he could be. And it becomes kind of, I think, a catalyst for Lando to change.
0: Sure. I mean, the Lando situation is definitely something that, that I want to talk about.
1: Let's do that because I think it's important. I think that it's a big deal for us to discuss this Lando because we had a lot of thoughts about this this time.
0: Yeah. I mean, this time I felt completely differently about Lando's decision. And, you know, so Lando has this, uh, this gas mining colony. He has a whole city, you know. And it seems like things are going pretty well there for the most part. And then he has the Empire show up, and that is a very, very big deal. The, these are not people that you can just blow off and just say, oh, no, I don't think so. These are people that are going to kill you and everyone in your city. So you pretty much have to go along with, with what you know what they want from you. Otherwise, you're, you're going to go down. And so we, you know, can fill in the blanks by what we see later in the film with the discussions between Lando and Vader. But what it seems is that Lando was told, okay, we're setting up a trap for this guy Luke Skywalker. Your buddy Han Solo is here with some of his people. You guys just kind of hang out for a bit. We'll capture the person, and then you guys can go back to business as usual. It's never good to go ahead and say, you know, I... uh, I'm ready to turn somebody in, you know, for, for my friends. Um, you don't know this person. That, that That's not a great idea. But at the same time, I think in the heat of the moment, the decision was made. Okay, this one person is going to be turned into the Empire. I don't know him. My friends are going to be fine. The people in my city are going to be fine. So I like to think about that and say, huh, he's made this decision for more people you know it's like star trek almost right
1: like yeah i mean you're the the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few yes yeah so and this is the thing he was sold a bill of goods right now we do see this from han and leah's perspective because that's you know who our team is you know we've been on their team the whole time yeah So, you know, we see this as a betrayal, and it certainly is portrayed that way, Um, and Lucas looks at it that way, and, you know, again, this kind of goes back to the thing about him forcing a point sometimes when, because that's what the point is supposed to be, but if you look at it a little bit more deeply, it's not so black and white. There are shades of gray here, and I thought that was a really uh, smart thing. I really looked at it differently this way, too, because... Lando is told they're just looking for the Skywalker guy. You know, we're going to use your friends as bait, but they're going to be fine. The Skywalker guy's going to show up. We're going to take him and then we'll leave you alone. Your other option is you know, I don't know what we're going to do to you, but the people who don't cooperate with the Empire don't do so well. Right? So what's your choice there? Like, you know, do something that doesn't seem that big of a deal or lose everything and everyone. I mean, I, I think that he made the right choice from his perspective in that moment. I I don't think there's a way to argue otherwise personally. Um, although, (laughs) you know, because of the point of view of the film, I think we all are, uh, you know, and in, initially gonna have that response of looking at him as betraying them. And you had a funny story that you read about that oh
0: yeah well <laughs> <laughs> like billy d williams would take his kid to school and kids would like start calling him like a traitor say you like you betrayed han solo <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> and so you know he would like talk to these kids about it and be like oh no you know here's the situation but yeah when you're faced with an impossible decision everyone dies or you turn in this one person you turn in the one person because it's better than everyone dies and, th- and that's and that's what lando was faced with and then you can see him you know like talking to vader and vader just keeps changing the deal next it's hans going to the bounty hunter it's like wait we didn't agree to that next it's the wookiee and leia are never going to be able to leave cloud city and it's just like we keep going and lando you know is challenging vader which is a very scary thing yeah you know vader is not someone that you challenge and we'll get to that in just a minute um You know, he says to Vader, you know, this isn't the deal. You know what I mean? This isn't this isn't what we said, you know. And (laughs) Vader is like, you know, pray I don't alter our deal any further. And you can really see in Lando he's terrified because, you know, he's been able to have some back and forth with Vader. And you you can for a very limited time. I never would. I would be terrified. (laughs) But, you know, he he pushes it. He really tries. And, you know, Vader makes it very clear with what he says that if he keeps talking to him this way and pushing him, everybody will die. That That's yeah. it. That's He's it. like,
1: you want trouble? Because you can have it. Yeah. If you keep asking for it, you're going to get it. I mean, you know, Vader's pretty upfront about that. and. I think that, you know, I think Lando has to do what he does at the beginning because that's the only choice he has. And immediately upon realizing that nothing that he agreed to is being honored, he makes the decision to try to change it. And he does try to atone for what he's done. So, you know, I don't think Lando is evil. I don't think that his decision is even evil. I think that... It's practical and logical in the context of his understanding at the time he makes that decision.
0: Well and also he thinks that Vader is going to keep his word, which, you know
1: <laughs> Yeah. He's well, not.
0: He's gonna do what he wants.
1: And he does trick them. Like the way that he does it is tricky. But at the same time, you know, what other choices he have. He can't just say to them like, okay, you know, guys, I had to make a deal um, with Vader. He's in the other room. I need to take you to him now. So just come with me. Do you think they're going to do that? Of course not. They're not going to come quietly with you. I mean, <laughs> the second that, that he opens the door, like within... A millisecond and of them seeing Darth Vader, Han is already shooting him, which is pretty badass of Han, by the way. Very much. To immediately just be like, I guess I'm just going to start shooting Vader. Um, And (laughs) it's super cool because Vader's like, I think not. You know, and he like zaps the gun over to himself. But, you know, it's a cool scene. And you know, they 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 pretty immediately figure out what's going on. You know, this is a trap, and that's when Luke shows up and everything happens. But I just think, you know, in a way, Lando's like an instrument here. And character-wise, I think that what he did made sense. And I wouldn't have said that when I was a kid. Because I feel like the story is definitely leading you to believe that he has done something wrong and made some sort of mistake. But sometimes there is no right choice. Sometimes there is no good choice. There's only, you know, the best choice of bad
0: choices. And Orlando didn't seek out this choice. Mm-mm. He didn't seek out this deal.
1: No, he wasn't, like, looking for something to gain anything. I mean, it's not to say that he doesn't do that at other times. He's a pretty opportunistic fella, right? But... He didn't go for this. He didn't find out, like, he's not a bounty hunter. No. Like Boba Fett, you know, who's looking for, for Han Solo to make money off of him. No. You know, he's he's a guy who got pushed into a corner and had to figure a way to get out of it. That's it.
0: Yep. And he comes around. He gets his people, you know, to shut down the Empire troops, you know, get their weapons, Gets Leia and Chewbacca some weapons, and, you know, they find out where Han is because Lando tells them. Of course, you know, Chewie is choking Lando while he tells them, but, you know, they're both reasonably, reasonably pissed. I mean, you know, they've seen their best friend and the love of their life, respectively, be put into a freezer and is just in this block of floating stone. Yeah. That's terrifying.
1: And brilliant. It is. I mean, I, I, that's that image is like burned into my mind from when I was a kid.
0: Well, and it also has to go again to Kirshner, because originally when Harrison Ford went into the carbonite, his hands were at his side and he almost looked like he was at peace or he was asleep. And Kirshner said, no, this is terrifying. He would be fighting with every inch of his being to get out of there. And so that's why we have the hands clawed up and that look of terror, you know, on Harrison Ford's face in the carbonite. And it's brilliant because it's just it. it yeah, it is horrifying. And you can see it, it's just a person clawing their way out and they just couldn't make it.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, again, it's just it's just there's so much. In this film. Yeah. You can't, like... You can't not think about it. I mean, Lando's redemption is fantastic. Because Lando comes around. He's one of the good guys. We're all very happy about it. You know, you could tell Lando is a cool person. But he really made a fucked up decision. But he was forced into it. So it's weird. But yeah. he's straightening it out. You Well, know?
1: I mean, and to this point, like, you know... Again, when we're watching it as kids, you know, we're like, oh, Lando's bad because he betrayed his friends. And yet we've watched this whole movie and seen what Darth Vader is like. Yeah, yeah. You know, like this isn't his first rendezvous with people. <laughs> no. Where people are in trouble in this movie. Sure. I mean, it's over and over we've seen this.
0: The one funny thing with Lando, and I, I don't know what this is about. At the very end of the film, when he's in the Falcon with Chewie, he is wearing what looks like a, a, a spinoff of Han Solo's outfit from A New Hope. He has on the black vest, and he has on a shirt, but his shirt looks like it's, like, you know, like, uh, slightly brown. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's really, it's weird. Is this to say that, you know, it's like this is the, the his next step? An evolution that like you know the person that we ran into you know in a new hope was actually a step ahead uh you know maturity wise from where lando was this is like you know, like, I don't know, you're a priest in training. You know, it, it's it's kind of funny. And, you know, he's in the ship and he's got chewy. So I, I I always thought that was funny. Georgia made a great point. She's like, you know, Han probably has some clothes on the ship and <laughs> Lando needed to change. That was
1: just me being a goofball. But I think that...
0: <laughs> need I think to freshen that, up.
1: I thought, I thought that your point was brilliant. And I think it could be that. We're seeing Lando, like, take the first step towards, like, his journey of of becoming a good guy, like Han has done. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, I do think that that's there, but my joke was, well, you know, they had to escape quickly, so he didn't have time to bring all his majestic capes, and he has to just wear something out of Han Solo's closet, and that was what was in there, so, no, that that was goofy, but I think yours is probably cooler and more awesome and accurate.
0: Um. We also have a story from Carrie Fisher, because Carrie Fisher was actually staying at Eric Idle's apartment or house, I don't know what it was, while uh, they were shooting, because they were over in England. And uh, one night, uh, Eric Idle actually came back to his place, and at this time, he was shooting Life of Brian. And he came back, and he had the Rolling Stones, and (laughs) then Harrison Ford came over. And during the Monty Python Life of Brian, they were actually giving the extras this heavy-duty alcohol uh, that was dubbed Tunisian Table Cleaner. So Eric Idle came back with that, and they all got hammered, like hammered, hammered, hammered. They got (laughs) so hammered that that first scene in Cloud City you know, they said that was their happiest day of the shoot because they had stayed up all night drinking and they were still hammered when they shot it. Oh
1: my gosh, that's so crazy.
0: (laughs) It's nuts. The other one that's important, and this ties back to our Willow episode, is Jack Purvis. Now, Jack Purvis and Kenny Baker, you know, had this musical comedy duo called the Minitones. And both Kenny Baker and Jack Purvis are in the band of the Nelwyn in Willow, and in this, Jack Purvis shows up as the Chief Ugnaught. Now, Jack Purvis is the only actor to be credited as a different character in each of the three original Star Wars films. He was the Chief Jawa in A New Hope, and he was also Tebow the Ewok in Return of the Jedi. So I just wanted to make sure we mentioned that because, you know, Kenny Baker, Jack Purvis, homies for life.
1: Yes, they were awesome. So before we leave Cloud City, I did want to make one other comment about it, which is about the design of the city. Um, George Lucas said that he was inspired to think about this by flying in planes a lot because he was always on a plane and he was like up above the clouds. So he was thinking about this, but... I actually thought of another cloud city that I had seen before from Star Trek. So there is an episode of season three of Star Trek, which is not a very good episode. Um, (laughs) Well, it is season three of Star Trek, the original series, which had some floaters. (laughs) Um, But it's uh, set in this place that has kind of a mine on the surface of the planet, where these troglites live and work. And then there's a city in the clouds called Stratus, where, like, the rich people live. Or Richies, if I can call (laughs) back to our Pretty in Pink
0: episode. Thank you, Harry, Dean, Stanton, and John Hughes for bringing us that term.
1: (laughs) But I thought it was really interesting how similar Bespin kind of is to Stratus. We have a mine, we have a city in the clouds, the kind of designs of the cities are similar in a way, Um, and it's got like the red sky, and then we also have like this torture of Han Solo, which kind of looks similar, at least a little bit, to this torture of this character in Cloudminders, which is the Star Trek episode where they're kind of tied up against this post and they're facing like some kind of torture device. So I don't know, you know, if there is a correlation between Cloudminders and Cloud City, but I find there to be so many similarities that it would almost be weird um, if somebody, I don't know if it was George Lucas, but it could have been special effects people. It could have been production designers, just had kind of a little Cloud Minders in their mind at the time. So The Cloudminders episode of Star Trek was aired in February of 1969. And even though that seems like a really long time ago, when Empire Strikes Back was being filmed, it was 1979. So it was really only 10 years prior. Um, and I think that, you know, it's possible that somebody could have had that in their brain Um, who worked on Cloud City. Um, So if you want to check that out and compare it, or try to Google it and do a better job than me, you might find out more information about that. (laughs) Little Star Trek, Star Wars crossover. Um, I don't, I mean, I think we've talked about it before, but I love both Star Trek and Star Wars, just like I love both the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, and I don't necessarily think that we need to turn that into like a a fight-to-the-death pairing, I think that you can like both for different reasons, and I certainly
0: do. The other thing I want to bring up, and this is a much smaller point, but it's just something that's kind of interesting. So, Billy D. Williams actually was in a film called The Bingo Long-Traveling All-Stars and Motor Kings in 1976, with James Earl Jones and Richard Pryor, uh, they were baseball players, and I just think it's interesting to think about, you know, Lando and Vader and Richard Pryor together, you know, uh, you know, back in 1976. And also, again, you know, we actually had Billy D. Williams and James Earl Jones together again in the 90s in a TV movie called Percy and Thunder. I just thought this was kind of interesting, even though in Empire Strikes Back, Billy D. Williams and James Earl Jones were were never on, you know, the set together because David Prowse was Vader on the set. I mean, maybe they ran into each other at an ADR session, maybe, but possibly, I mean, in the finished product, they're together. And it just made me think about, hey, have these guys ever done anything else together? Because I always love to find those little connections. And James Earl Jones, of course, fantastic villain, the best, you know, I mean, Conan the Barbarian, you know, Thulsa Doom, thank (laughs) you, Darth Vader, incredible. And with The Empire Strikes Back, there's a real spotlight on Darth Vader.
1: Definitely.
0: You know, from top to bottom. I mean, you know, what was the poster? It was Darth Vader's head. At the time that this movie came out, they actually had this kind of Darth Vader head that was a carrying case for your star wars figures
1: i thought that was the coolest thing ever i never had it but i know you did oh yeah and my friends i had a lot of friends who did and i'm not a huge darth vader person like one of the things i was kind of laughing about when i was thinking about whether this is comfort film or not is that i have friends and i've known people who are like so into darth vader and love darth vader so much That they probably like in Strikes Back because they feel like their guy is winning, sort of, at the end of this movie. Uh, But I am, like, you know, all light side person. I don't like the dark side. And so, for me, I'm just like, no. But i have to admit like darth vader is super cool looking i do think they shined up his helmet like you said yeah he looks spiffy and you know we get to see him a lot more in a lot more of a powerful position like in the first movie in a new hope he's much more kind of the servant of the empire guys like grand moff tarkin and all the, you know, he's following orders.
0: Yeah, and he's stuck in, like, a bullshit meeting yeah, with so... all these old white guys. Get him <laughs> out of there. Like, he should be running the show. Yeah. And it's just like, now he seems to be freed of all of that kind of bureaucratic BS, but now it's like he's dealing straight with the big man himself. I mean, this film, in a way, is kind of like Darth Vader's workplace adventure. You know,
1: <laughs> workplace drama. Well, season. yeah.
0: I, I mean, it's it's crazy the pressure that this guy is under, right? I mean, let's think about it. You know, you've got the boss doing a video call with you, saying, <laughs> "Look, you got to take out your son. You got to just make it happen." And you're like, "Oh no, maybe my son would be cool. Maybe he'd fit in with the team concept." Boss is like, I don't know. If it can work out, it's good. But you know that the Emperor in the back of his head is thinking, you know, if this doesn't work out with Luke, it's going to be his ass. You yeah, know? totally, totally. There's no safety net for Vader. And then all of the officers that Vader works with just seem to be incompetent. Now, in a moment that we can all relate to, at the beginning of this movie, we have Admiral Ozil, okay? And he is telling Vader that... Hoth could never be the place where the rebels are. And as soon as Vader hears that or sees the picture, he's like, That's it. That is the place. And Ozl's like, Oh no, Vader. You know what I mean? He just tries to BS him. Vader's not having any of it, but he just kind of moves along. And he's just like, No, this is where we're going. So then, you know, we actually have the attack on Hoth, and guess what? So Admiral Ozl comes out of Lightspeed much too close to Hoth, and it gives the Rebels, you know, an early warning so that they can spring into action. And, you know, it falls upon (laughs) General Veers, who's talking to Darth Vader, and Vader is like, you know, what happened here? Why did we come out too soon? And Veers is actually trying to cover for Ozzel. He's like, oh, you know, this, that. But Vader sees right through it. And so General Veers is put in charge of this ground attack. Now, another connection that is interesting is General Veers is actually played by Julian Glover, who is the Nazi villain. In Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, so reuniting him, uh, he doesn't have any on-screen time with Harrison Ford in this film. But again, it's just neat how all these folks come together. You know, I I, I really dig that. And if they had General Veers in charge, I think they would have really cleaned house yeah. with the rebels because he is down to business. He's like, all right, we've got this target. Let's handle it. He's on the phone with Vader. Vader feels good about it. You know, like, he is going to move up. He's an up-and-comer in the Empire. You know, he's not like Ozzel.
1: And he takes orders. Like, he has the appropriate amount of respect for Darth right. Vader. Because the situation that we have here is, like, Vader's supposed to be in charge. But he has all these people who he's telling what to do who just keep effing it up. Like, and stop. Yeah, they question him. Yeah. They argue with him. They want to tell him like how it is. And like Vader doesn't want to hear it. He just wants to tell people what to do and have them do it. And boy, I can relate to that. It's <laughs> like finds the most relatable I've ever found Darth Vader.
0: And terminating an employment takes on a whole new meaning in this film. <laughs> you know, he just like chokes out Ozel, you know, and then it's like there's uh Piet and it's like Admiral Piet, you know, you're in charge now. And Admiral Piet is I guess excited to be in charge, but he's really terrified. Yeah. Admiral Piet is wearing this mantle of fear.
1: And there's no HR department to call. No. He's, he's <laughs> He's stuck here, so you know. In one way, I, he is, I think, excited to be promoted. Right. you know, over the corpse of his former boss, <laughs> as are we all. Right, you know, what don't we all want that? You know, <laughs> but
0: I mean, it's it's pretty honest, right? Except it's yeah, we're we're actually seeing someone die. Two people side by side. The boss dies. I mean, that's what happens when somebody gets fired and somebody gets promoted. But this is taking it literally. (laughs) Very
1: literally. Yeah,
0: and it's insane. It's insane, you know, to see it.
1: And the thing with Piet is that for the rest of the movie, he's basically waiting to also be murdered and replaced. Like, he is on edge, I think, the entire movie. And at the end, he does screw up. And I think he fully believes that he's going to be killed, but Vader kind of just makes a noise or whatever and walks by. Like he's frustrated, but not murderously frustrated, I guess.
0: I don't know why Piet gets a pass. I mean, I I don't know. I mean, it's, it's like Vader, we show, is not a good person. That's why we keep seeing the murder. We keep seeing all these horrible acts. And that's what Lucas said. We need to remember that Vader is horrible. So Piet getting a pass is just one of those really bizarre moments that we'll find, again, in a horror film. You know, somebody that's just maybe a little too dumb, you know? And it's just like...
1: It's like not worth killing Piet, maybe. Yeah. Because, yes, we've seen will take it. Veers seemed actually like he kind of was the best guy. Yeah. But he presumably bought it on Hoth. We don't know exactly. There's kind of two different tracks here. I think that the script initially had him dying there, but there's other Star Wars lore that has him like living on past this, but you know, um, we also have Nita, Captain oh. Nita.
0: Captain Nita is, I mean, you just gotta feel sorry for this son of a bitch. He, <laughs> you know, he seems to be, you know, reliable. He's doing his job. Captain Nita is in one of the the smaller non-Darth Vader star destroyers and they find the millennium falcon this is when han actually charges the star destroyer with the falcon and then the falcon goes off the radar and that's because they've actually attached to the star destroyer and they later float away with the garbage and boba fett is there and then sees them and then chases them but nita does not know what happened, he doesn't get it, he doesn't understand how the Falcon charged at a Star Destroyer and then disappeared. Well, he thinks he's being a good employee and a good man. He's like, you know, I'm gonna assume full responsibility for losing the ship. I'm going to go to Lord Vader, I'm going to apologize in person. <laughs> and then we go to Vader's Star Destroyer, and then you see Captain Dita being choked. And he dies, and he hits the floor, and Vader is like, apology accepted, Captain Nita.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, once again, yes, Vader is very big on skirting HR. (laughs) He doesn't care about the company policy. He is going to do what he wants to do. Even though the Empire is very big on order and policy and things like that, you still have, like, your chaotic Vader force out there causing trouble.
0: Vader also wants to play his own game. He wants Luke to join him so that the two of them can overtake the Emperor. You know, with the Sith, they're always two. That's the thing. So if Vader gets Luke, they can kill the Emperor, and then Vader can be the top dog. Yeah. You know, and that's that's really it. This is just moving up the corporate ladder In the most brutal of ways, you know, (laughs) Vader has sacrificed literally his humanity to be the top dog or for the hope to be the top dog in the Empire. So it's, yeah, we've really got a lot of workplace business in this film. And it is centered around Vader. And I also feel like it it does humanize him because, you know, it it is comedic. You know, it, it is absurd. But, yeah, we've all had these moments where you feel like I'm surrounded by people that are incompetent. You have people that just won't listen to you. Like, for instance, it's like C-3PO. No one wants to listen to him in this film. Everybody just wants to shut him up. I mean, this guy's a genius.
1: Yes, he knows, you know, he can speak all these languages. He, you know, can often figure something out before other people just because he's a great communicator. You know, he understands things better than people. And people just don't want to hear it because he is also kind of an annoying, prissy person. <laughs> person, robot, whatever we're going to call him.
0: <laughs> it's, yeah, they could find him, uh, you know, annoying. I mean, maybe sometimes I can be like C3PO. Who knows? Because oh, I like to talk. He's
1: a know it all, too. I can definitely be like him.
0: All right. We have our 3PO moments, all of us.
1: It's okay. All he's, right. you know, he's. He's a real person in that way. You know, he feels very real because he has, you know, pros and cons, strengths and weaknesses. You know, he can understand all these languages, but he has trouble understanding human emotion. But he's still, you know, he gets a lot of things. And there are times when they could have listened to him and avoided some problems.
0: Yeah.
1: um, But they didn't. So...
0: The other thing that I really like about this story is the developing love story between Leia and Han. We get to go a lot deeper, and there's a lot of push and pull. It really reminds me of, like, the 30s and the 40s. It really makes me think of the energy that we find in films like It Happened One Night or His Girl Friday. (laughs) You know, it's just like they've really done a beautiful job with this. Now, the scene where they actually kiss... And the Falcon. Now, this was really good. This was from the uh, commentary. Carrie Fisher said this. Right before they filmed that scene, Harrison Ford said to Carrie Fisher that he hates kissing scenes. He doesn't like them at all. He had to do a kissing scene, and he actually, on another film, put a bunch of oysters in his mouth. And during the kiss, actually pushed oysters into the other person's mouth. (laughs) Okay, so this is, like, right before the scene happens. And then, you know, when you watch that, okay, keep that in mind. Carrie Fisher looks especially terrified, you know? She's putting up, like, extra levels of resistance. (laughs) And it comes through so beautifully. It's, like, this really good, like, like trick. You know what I mean? It was just, like, a little psychological (laughs) how-do-you-do. And it brought it all the way up. Because it's, like, we have wanted Han and Leia together they have so much resistance, and then they finally kiss, and then see three PO shows up. <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> ah, it's so funny. I mean, that's uh, that. It does feel like a screwball rom com from like the the early nineteen hundreds, and we love those kind of movies. And the reason I think we love them is because the characters remain true to themselves while at the same time they're falling in love. So you still have like the woman be like this tough kind of independent person and the guy can still be your scoundrel type you know but they still get together in spite of their differences and you know it gives them a lot of chemistry and spark and I definitely feel that with Leia and Han it was interesting to me that I read that one of the big criticisms at the time this came out which is of course before people realized that Luke and Leia are siblings or twins is that people kind of were were not happy that Leia was kind of having a relationship with Han instead of Luke because they thought, you know, it would make more sense for her to be with Luke. Um, clearly, there was a reason why that didn't work out. But it was funny to me that at the time that was a complaint because I personally think Leia and Han fit together perfectly. It goes all the way back to something like Much Ado About Nothing by Shakespeare, where you have these people who just are constantly fighting, but they also are, you know, deeply, clearly in love with each other.
0: And you should check out our Much Ado About Nothing episode because Georgia knows a lot about Shakespeare.
1: Now, we've covered a whole lot of things, and we are at the point of, you know, probably going on longer than we've ever gone on before on one of these episodes. But I think that's just a testament to how much there is to talk about in this movie, because there's still a couple of other things that I really, really want to discuss, and that would be the visual effects of the film and the sound effects of the film. So the visual effects. In this, a lot of it is... Some of it is, like, this dawn of CGI. We have, like, matte and blue screen work, especially with, like, the flying and the speeders and the space and all this kind of stuff. But at the same time, they also used a lot of stop motion in this, which I thought was really impressively done. The AT-ATs are stop motion. The Tauntauns are stop motion. And they look great. I mean you know, we've, we've messed around with stop motion ourselves and we kind of really enjoy it. John made a stop motion uh, Funko Pop with the Bob's Burgers characters a few weeks ago, which I loved. If you haven't seen it, go on Instagram and look at it because it's adorable. We did one with like Fruit a few years back, which I really enjoyed That's on our old YouTube channel. And you know, it's, it's hard. Like all the stuff with visual effects, whether it's the computer generated or stop motion is so difficult. And I'm so impressed when I see it pulled off as well as it is in this, because with like the adats I never thought about it. I just thought that they were real. There's, you know, as much as I thought Yoda was with the amazing puppeteering stuff. I thought that ad ads were also... They, it just never crossed my mind that they didn't have these giant adats, ads you know? But all these things are models. And I just think that it's brilliant. I think that it's amazing. And the Tontons kind of have a Muppet-like appearance. And there was some things that they did with that where, like, you see the close-ups on the Tauntaun, and really it's just, like, three layers, they explained. So there's, like, this white background on the back then the second layer is the tauntaun itself and moving around you know just frame by frame to show motion and then the front layer is just like another piece of glass with kind of just some different kind of stuff sprayed on it to look like snow and just frame by frame they change it and make it look like he's actually you got this real tauntaun out in the snow moving and, like, I almost never question it because it looks too cool. So, in addition to, like, the stop-motion stuff and the CGI stuff, they also did do some practical type effects. Um, one of the coolest <laughs> that Kirshner explained on the commentary is the scene where Han is shooting at Vader and kind of, the you know, zaps the gun over to, into his own hand. And the way they achieve that is they just took a shot of Kirshner throwing the gun across the room and then they had the string on the gun in David Prowse's as Darth Vader's hand and they filmed it upside down so that it while they were pulling it out of his hand to make it look like it was popping into his hand. So it went backwards.
0: That's incredible. I mean, I wouldn't even think of something like that.
1: No, and it was funny because they were talking about like Oh, it could be a really expensive shot. Like, what are we going to do? And then he just did it, like, for no money, no extra money, just using these practical effects, and they did a similar thing with, uh, with the C-3PO parts. So, like, after C-3PO is kind of pulled apart by the Ugnaughts, Chewie goes in and finds him all decapitated and pulled apart in a box. And steals him back and then kind of has him hanging on his back. And so while he's hanging on Chewie's back, they had to have C-3PO be able to move. And they weren't sure how to do it. They were trying to do it like robotically and do all these different things. And it wouldn't work. So they ended up just tying like fishing line or string or something to his head to move it back and forth. So it looked like he was moving and then his arm also was on, on like a fishing line kind of thing. And they also use fishing line for the Minox on the scene where the Falcon is inside this creature, which is inside the asteroid. So lots of like really good deployment of practical effects with fishing line.
0: Yeah, and I mean, again, that worm scene just calls back to Dune, you know? Oh, yeah, that yeah. worm,
1: you did use that in the, where did this worm come from? <laughs>
0: It's hard to believe that there are just so many worms in film. You <laughs> yeah. Know?
1: Well, I question this worm a lot because we're on an asteroid, not a planet. And, I mean, is this a space-faring worm that, like, found an asteroid to live on? Did this worm independently evolve on the asteroid? Like, I have questions. Also, there are apparently Minox inside the body of this worm. So, again... Did they independently evolve? And if so, how is it that they're exactly like other Minox which must exist somewhere else, because Han Solo is immediately able to identify these creatures as Minox. I'm confused. Um, maybe they were seeded on the asteroid by, you know, a worm group who are spacefaring. These are many, many questions. I mean, I also had a question Uh, while we're talking about the Falcon, about how the gravity control works on the Falcon. (laughs) Because when it gets hit by a shot or an asteroid, it seems to shake the people around quite a bit. But then at the same time, they're like corkscrewing through space and there doesn't seem to be any, you know, turning upside down or shaking around. So is it just that it only works if they're not being acted on by an outside force? I mean, that's the assumption I have to make. But I I need to question the physics and the exobiology uh, and astrobiology in this space fantasy. I think my science fiction hat is on and I should take it off and put my science fantasy hat on because I think I'm trying to make it make sense scientifically when it doesn't.
0: Well, this is a space opera, as they say, you know, and it really does have a lot of fairy tale elements to it. I mean, we've got an evil furry bear, you know, <laughs> and yet you have to cut his arm off and. You know, apparently that's okay when you cut an arm off. You know, one of the other changes that I do want to mention really quickly that came in the later films was the Wampa. The Wampa became a lot scarier. We actually saw the Wampa, you know, feasting on some creature. Very bloody, it's very, very scary. Yeah, and it's funny because the Wampa kind of looks like a Muppet and it looks like it would be cool. And it's not. It, it's going to kill you. But I have to tell you, the action figure of the Wampa was fantastic. You know, it had these big hands. So you could put a Star Wars action figure between its hands. So it could, like, hold the head on one side and then hold the bottom of the feet with the other. And you could just, like, hold it up. Great toy. I had all the toys. I was crazy, you know. <laughs> I'm one of those people.
1: <laughs> yeah, I... I never even saw a Wampa toy, so I think that's kind of nuts. Also, in the first, you know, in the 1980 version, we barely even see him. We see him, like, scare Luke, and then we kind of see his arm get cut off, and that's kind of the end of the show there for the
0: Wampa. Well, that's because they weren't able to achieve what they wanted for the Wampa. They were waiting for things to progress. I mean, it's crazy to think when you talk about ILM, these titans that make the impossible possible, You know if there's something that didn't work but you know that that crew is you know the best the best how many times have we talked about dennis murin and how many films
1: well just last week in terminator we actually talked about in terminator 2 we actually talked about how you know they couldn't use the t-1000 kind of character until t2 because they didn't have the technology to create that type of a character. But then when they got it, they started using it. And that's when they could make the movie. So it's like they had to wait um, for things to catch up. Yeah. You know? And, you know, I mean, we hear the frustration that Lucas talked about in the commentary with Yoda. Where kind of he imagined this tiny little creature person. Um, and he wasn't sure how they are going to do it. And it did end up being very successful With the puppet, but he still was somewhat dissatisfied because they had to figure out how to shoot around it and what to do with Yoda in these training montages. And he kind of felt hampered by the fact that, you know, you had to have a puppeteer or a group of people puppeteering working that puppet. Now, that's not to say that he thought Frank Oz had done a bad job because I actually did want to mention. That they tried to get Frank Oz recognized with a Supporting Actor Academy Award, but Evil Sag said that puppeteers aren't actors, (laughs) and I think that's kind of BS. I mean, I'm glad that they're revisiting things like this now, because, you know, CGI actors wearing, like, the whole suit, you know, doing motion capture, and especially Frank Oz puppeting Yoda into, like, a real, you know, making us think it's a real person, that's acting. I mean, if anything is acting, like, these are... These, this is, like, stretching the definition of what acting can be. And I think that it would have been really cool to see Frank Oz get some kind of award recognition. But at the same time, I think everybody just recognizes what an amazing job he did with this.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's no way... That you can forget Yoda. I mean, Mm -hmm. no one can forget Yoda. I mean, look at the spinoffs now where we've seen it. Everybody getting excited. Baby Yoda. You know, (laughs) like, we can't get enough. I mean, these are the people that that are in our culture now. You remember Yoda. You remember Vader's mask. You know, it's iconic. Again, bringing it back to horror. It's like Jason Voorhees, the hockey mask, right? We remember that. These are these are the icons it's an incredible undertaking for anyone to make a movie but to make a movie that is this strong and this affecting it's just such a joy to behold it you know i mean and also i mean if we think about the actual music in the film i mean john williams we have not spent enough time talking about it all john williams gives you music always that just kind of makes your heart sing and i mean the star wars theme is this beautiful rousing anthem you know you see that scroll and when it comes up on the screen a long time ago in a galaxy far far away i always am like how many seconds is it before the song comes up because it just blasts on and it scares me every time because i'm like (laughs) i'll count the seconds i bet you it's three and then it's wrong i never know what it is and i don't want to know because i like the surprise (laughs) and it's just like you know it's like the beginning it's like here we go you know And in this film, I really, really loved, you know, the Imperial March. That was my favorite song. I agree with you. It's so powerful. It's, well, it's Vader once again. This is, it's Vader's theme. They could have called it that. You know, it comes on so heavy. I had this record as a kid and i would always go to the imperial march and i loved how serious and intense it was it made me feel like i was an adult and i was actually taking care of things that mattered you know it's like <laughs> i'm very powerful now you know i'm taking care of business you know and it was it was just this great feeling it's like don't you know, it, it's just like, whew, I, I love it. Like, yes, I love it. Every single scene gives us something new. You know, it's like that, those high notes. I mean, I'm going to spare you from any more of John mimicking the music. But, um, you know, there, there are just all these wonderful moments. And at the very end of the film, you know, in the finale... When we actually are left with this moment of, okay, this isn't fully resolved. You know, Chewie and Lando are going to Jabba's palace. You know, Luke and Leia are on this ship with 3PO and R2. And it's like, you see, like, there is some kind of plan forming to go get Han and bring everything back to business. And it's just like, then we go outside of this massive ship. That that Luke and Leia and the droids are in, and you just take in this full scope of how big everything is. In many ways, it mirrors the Star Destroyer that we see at the beginning of the film. You know that that drops that Imperial probe. You know, and it's just like whoa, this is massive, and it gives you a second. It's like the first break in the action. You know, it's just like up until the moment that we go outside of that rebel ship, I mean, we're still dealing with Luke's hand. We're dealing with this robotic hand, which again, kind of like Terminator. (laughs) Um, You know, when we come outside of this massive ship, we're able to, to like exhale and just kind of take in this whole story. And it's at that moment we realize, (laughs) as Georgia mentioned, Oh shit. When do we find out, (laughs) you know what happens? And then the music swells and there's like a harp. If, if, I'm, if I'm picking it out right and the music comes in, it's just, it's beautiful. It's able to take every single emotion that you've had in this film. You know, the fear, the joy, the heartbreak, the desire, I, all of it. I, I think that this, for me, is my favorite music from John Williams. I, I would play this anytime
1: i think it could be one of the best scores of any film that exists yeah period i mean the soundscape in this film even beyond the music is kind of unbelievable i think that you know one we learned a lot about how they made a lot of the sound effects because bert uh on the commentary track discussed it as a sound designer, but you know, that it was so creative how they came up with things, and it also is really well done how they complemented the music with sound effects. But I was just so interested in all these ways that they made these noises like the tauntaun sound is the sound of a sea otter, a very specific sea otter, apparently. Um, The snow sound is, they recorded the sound of surf and they kind of mixed it up and down in different volumes to make it kind of sound like blowing snow. To make the sound of wind, they dragged a pencil down a piece of canvas. Um, That was just one example of how you could make a wind sound that he talked about. Um, and then, of course, in the Hoth battle scene, there's all kinds of cool sounds that they had to come up with that don't really exist. Like, you know, the sound of these lasers firing on the at or the sound of an at in general walking, you know, and the speeder sound. So the laser sound was the sound of an old biplane motor cranking and then they took the sound for the speeders of the LA freeway recorded at a distance through a vacuum cleaner pipe. And my favorite is the Adat, which is a combination of a metal shearing machine, an artillery shell sound recorded from a distance and they needed something else. And, and Bert wasn't sure how to do it. And, He went out to check his newspaper and threw out the trash. And the dumpster made the squeaking sound. And so he used, like, the squeaky dumpster lid as the third component of the add-out sound. And I just love that because it just is so creative. Like, you know, you're trying to envision... And I'm mixing, you know, my senses here. But you're trying to envision a sound that doesn't really exist and you're thinking of all these different ways to do it and I I just think that's brilliant it's probably in my mind the most creative job that you could have on a movie because you're really creating something from nothing and using whatever you have on hand to do it and it's so realistic that we just don't question it you know, like he, I believe, worked on A New Hope as well. So I'm assuming he's the guy who came up with the sound of the lightsabers that people have been mouth mimicking for many years. Too, you know? <laughs> so, you know, and, and, and the sound is just so important to this film, like the sound effects and the music together and how they're mixed and how they complement each other. It's just amazing. That is a big point for me overall. When we were listening to the commentary, and when I'm thinking about this movie in general, and that is something that that Kershner was talking about, which is that when he was making this movie, he wasn't sure that it was going to work. You know, he's he's there working with the actors in this in these sets and in this freezing cold set in Norway. You know, where they're outside at negative twenty degrees. And, you know, in the in this bunker scene on Hoth, you know, where they barely can hear the actors because there's so much other noise going on and they don't have special effects. They have, you know, a guy running through the hangar, holding a cutout of a Tauntaun, you know, because they're trying to have a placeholder for it. And he just wasn't sure it was all going to come together because he knew there's these people over here working on special effects and you have the sound thing, you have the music, you have all these things. And he was terrified, I think. And and I think when you're leading any kind of a project, you're terrified that it's not going to come together. And there were just so many people working on this. But everybody was brilliant. Everybody kind of had a unified vision, even though they're working independently on a lot of different things. And it did come together. It really, really, really came together.
0: Yeah, it, it came together in a way that I don't think they ever could have imagined. And it's everything. I mean, there was so much side coaching. Like when they were getting shot in the ship, you know, you would just have Kirshner off screen yelling left, right, <laughs> you know, so that they would go. And also when they were in the mouth of the worm, the same thing. And it's just like, so you're acting and and then you hear that direction. You throw yourself in that direction. You throw yourself in the other direction and, and you're fully, you're fully committed. You have to be working together, you know, as the best team ever to make that work to sell these things to us because I fully believe things are being rocked yeah and that's why they are moving
1: yeah well and Kirshner also did the voices of Darth Vader and Yoda in like the timing for the editing and the sound editing all these things too and he acted it yeah you know so like I just think it's really funny to think about how committed he was and doing all this stuff. And it really came through. It really shows through. It's what happens when you do have people who understand each other really well. Like George Lucas and Kirshner. You know, I don't think Lucas could have picked a better person to take the reins for this sequel than Kirshner. And I just think it's a freaking brilliant sequel. It's one of the best ones there is. Yeah.
0: It, it, and again, it's just like definitely hands down. My favorite in the entire Star Wars series. And I will say that against anything that ever comes out after. You know, it's right there.
1: And, you know, I mean, people talk about, Bert talked about in the commentary, that when this initially came out, the people were kind of like not so sure about it. Because they were like, you know, well, it's maybe not as good as the first one. And it was cool, but it was maybe a disappointment. But in the end, like, people have really come around. And I think... It's almost universally acknowledged as the best film in the series and deservedly so. So I think that, you know, if somebody does come up to us in an alley and pulls a switchblade and says, all right, I buy your comfort film bullshit, but, you know, how are you going to tell me this is a great sequel? I think that that we could just put on this two hour podcast (laughs) and if they will be patient enough to listen to it. They'll, they'll get all the info they need.
0: I think what I would do is put on the Imperial March <laughs> and pull out my red lightsaber and decapitate them. Okay, well, you know. You pull the switchblade on me. What do you want?
1: Tomato, tomato. <laughs> uh, different strokes for different folks, pun intended.
0: The other point that I want to make is with the lightsabers in the battle, there is no other sound other than the lightsabers.
1: And it's chilling Mm -hmm. that scene is absolutely crazy i love it yeah this movie's great i could put it on at any point from any point and i'm gonna watch it all the way to the
0: end Mm -hmm. and i have done that many times in hotels it comes on and i'll be like i'm gonna watch it i'll stay up (laughs) to three in the morning you know
1: (laughs) and say why not you can't really spend your time better if you're gonna watch a movie than watching this one even if you already watched it 15 times in the same week. What I was thinking actually was the last time that we watched it before we decided, before we came in to record, you actually said I would watch it again right now.
0: I would. Yeah. I just want to say this episode is going out to all the unused bounty hunters. <laughs> um, You know, we really like you guys. You know, this is for you, Loam, IG-88, Zuckus, Bosk, Dengar. You're as good as Boba Fett. You're up there with Whitman, Price, and Haddad in our book.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and I especially want to pour one out for Bosk, who looks like a Gorn from Star Trek. Um, And, you know, unfortunately, he didn't get quite as much mileage as the Gorn (laughs) captain gets, especially now that Star Trek Stranging Worlds is out. But I think he should have, because Bosk is amazing looking. And after I see him... I'm like, oh, I really want to know what's going to happen with this guy. And it's like, nothing. Well, I understand why, because cash. But I really wish we could have gotten some much deeper uh, Bosque story.
0: Like Boss Bosque.
1: Yes. That would have been
0: a great show. I love it. Maybe we'll get it from Disney. Disney, I am sure you're listening to us (laughs) and hanging on every word we say. The
1: Bosque series. Bosque
0: series, please.
1: Come on, do it, do Mm -hmm. it. All right, guys. Well, thanks for joining us for this super size episode <laughs> on the Empire Strikes Back. We enjoyed discussing this probably a little too much, uh, and yeah, that's that's the show. So join us next week when we are going to talk about another straight to the sequel movie,
0: ladies and gentlemen. We're going to be doing the Dark Knight,
1: which, if you check the IMDb top two hundred and fifty, is the number three movie user rating-wise, of all time. So that actually makes it the top-rated sequel on IMDb Top 250. So we are looking forward to that movie. We love it a ton. And it's another sequel that we go straight to all the time.
0: Yeah, it's just a piece of art.
1: Yeah, so join us next week when we discuss that. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for dropping by, and stay comfy.
0: Stay comfy, everybody.